Well, we finished up a series last week on the Gospel of Luke and the Kingdom of God, um, and we're probably going to stick in Luke for the rest of the Advent, the next four weeks, because Luke's account of uh, the birth of Jesus, the, the nativity scenes, is the richest of all the Gospels. And this morning, our scripture reading um, comes from a song, um, a prophecy, that Zach- Zechariah, the priest, uh, sings on the birth and the occasion of his son John, who will be called the Baptist. So here God's word to us from uh, Luke. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has his people and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the land of all who hate us, or from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would visit us in the midst of the darkness of our lives, that the light of Christ would shine forth in each of our hearts this morning in the way that we need it, with the light that we need just for that particular situation or struggle that we're having. So wherever we find ourselves, uh, in a place perhaps of faith or joy or in a good place or in a place of darkness or even doubt and questioning, may you meet us, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, When we think about the coming of Jesus, we usually think about two comings. His first coming and his second coming. His first coming, of course, is the, the one that was 2,000 years ago that we actually celebrate uh, over Christmas, right, or Advent. Jesus coming in the flesh. The second coming is the coming that will draw all of history to uh, a close, a conclusion. But according to the medieval and monk Bernard of Clairvaux, there's, there's another coming, there's a third coming. Real quick. I'm cutting in and out, Jamie, on my mic. Is that? Okay, we'll just go with it. So, um, there's a third coming, uh, and, I, and Bernard actually thinks that this is the coming in particular that we reflect on and worship during Advent. And I, I want to read to you a little bit from a sermon of his, which was pre- preached in the 12th century, um, about this third coming. This is what Bernard says. Says, we have come to know a threefold coming of the Lord. The third coming takes place between the other two. 
They are clearly manifest, but the third is not. In the first coming, the Lord was seen on earth and lived among men. In his last coming, all flesh shall see his salva the salvation of our God. The third coming is hidden. In it, only the chosen who see him within themselves and their souls are saved. His first coming was in the flesh and weakness. The last coming will be in glory and majesty. The third coming is in the spirit with power. And this coming, this intermediary coming, is, is the road leading from the first to the second. And I love that image of the third coming as a kind of road that connects the first coming of Jesus and the third coming of Jesus. And what we're doing during the Advent season is, in a sense, we're traveling that third road, which is easy to miss and can be easily hidden. And one of the things that uh, Bernard goes on to, to say about this third road, this third coming, uh, rather, is that in that we find our rest and our consolation. So I think this is a very helpful way to think about what we're doing during Advent. We're observing the third coming of Jesus is what we do actually all of our lives in the in-between of his first and second coming. Um, the stories uh, that we find in the Gospels around Advent, I think, are really important ones to return to again and again because what we learn to do by reflecting on these stories is what it means for us to receive and to welcome Jesus into our lives in this middle inter intermediary coming. And the Gospels, especially in Luke, is just populated with different characters um, that were a part of Jesus' first coming into the world. Of course, we know Mary and Joseph, but there's also uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah and their son, John the Baptist. And then there's the prophetess Anna and Simeon, and their shepherds, right? And each of these characters and figures in their own way, um, as they themselves struggled to understand and, and interact with the, with the Christ child, I think help us in this journey um, as we wait for the Lord's coming. And today we have Zechariah as our travel guide. And what we learn from Zechariah on this intermediary road is what it means to develop or to have a prophetic imagination. Um, you have to have a prophetic imagination if you are going to uh, perceive the third coming of Jesus in your life. And our scripture this morning is a very well-known scripture. It's, it goes by the term the Benedictus, which is a Latin for the, when this was um, translated in the Latin, uh, the first word of the prayer or the song is benedictus, blessed be the Lord, our God. And this has been an ancient prayer of the church as part of, um, as part of the liturgy and morning prayer. Um, and what's interesting is it's, a, it's actually not a song, but it's, it's a prophecy. And that's, Luke wants us to know that this is a prophecy. Zechariah is prophesying. And what he's prophesying about is actually, under, it's important to understand a little bit of the context in which we receive this, this, uh, this song of prophecy. Now, Zechariah was an older man. He was a priest. And uh, he had a wife named Elizabeth, and his wife was barren. She could not conceive, couldn't get pregnant, which uh, in that time was a great shame and seemed to be a curse to not be able to get pregnant. But 
Elizabeth is conceives, right? Um, and prior to that, Zechariah is visited by an angel when he's in the temple, and the angel announces it. But Zechariah, he, he doubts. And because of this, the angel strikes him with muteness so that he cannot speak. John is a miracle baby, and when he is eventually born, um, all the people are amazed that this older woman, Elizabeth, is giving birth. And they're like, you have to name him Zachariah Jr., right? And that's the custom. It's a miracle child. And Elizabeth says no. And they're like, you know, what does Zachariah say? Zachariah says no. And it's right at that moment when uh, he writes out his name shall be John, and the people are curious, and they're like, what, who will this child be? And it's at that moment that God loosens his lips, and he begins to speak, and he begins to respond, and this is that song that we have. Who will this son be? And what this psalm, this, or rather this song, or this, this, this prophetic song is about is what role his son will play, who he will be. But what's interesting about the song is this. There's only one line about John. The rest is about the coming of the Lord, of God's salvation. One of the distinct features of the infancy narratives in the Gospel of Luke is that there are two major songs. There's the song of Mary, which is before this, called the Magnificat. And there's a song of, of Zechariah, which we call the Benedictus. And the songs are not simply for show or flourish or ornamentation. What you see in both of these songs is actually uh, the kind of theological key of the gospel. In both songs, they express as kind of the meaning of the events that are to unfold in the birth, but also through the whole course of Jesus' life. And so if you could study both of these songs, you can really get all of what the theological reality of the Gospels is about. And I think it's important that the theology of the Gospels is expressed through poetry. Both songs are forms of poetry, not just propositions, poetry. And I think that's important because when you think about, again, God coming into our life, <laughs> especially when we talk about the third coming of Christ into our life, you have to have a poetic imagination. I mean, really, um, to have a prophetic imagination is to have a poetic imagination. When you read the prophets, um, most of their words to the people of Israel is in the form of poetry. The prayers, the psalms are poetry. To understand how God works, uh, you can't just sum it up in propositions and scientific truths, and there's a mystery there. How God enters the ordinary of our life requires us to have a poetic imagination. And that's where I think this psalm, or this, uh, this prophecy of Zechariah is so helpful. It helps us develop and cultivate our imagination. One of the things when you study this, this uh, the Benedictus, is uh, most commentaries will note that this, this, uh, this poetry, this prophecy, is... Uh, has over 33 or so, as one commentator counted, different direct quotations or allusions to the prophets and the Psalms of the Old Testament. So this man, Zechariah, was a priest and he knew the scriptures well and he indwelt them. And, and when the moment comes, the spirit sort of works through him and, and crafts this, this song, this prophetic song. 
I don't know if you read much poetry. I try to read poetry as much as I can. Um, and one of the best descriptions of poetry that I've encountered that helps me understand um, its role in my life <laughs> and its value, uh, one uh, literary critic put it this way. He says that poetry is that thing that adds to the stock of available reality. It adds to the stock of available reality. Um, the metaphors, the words, the similes, the, the combination of things together that you, it, it sort of expands, it opens up the imagination, right? To have a prophetic imagination, like I said, is to have a poetic imagination. It's to have a sense in which I can see life in this larger way that I couldn't before. And it's not a mistake that there's so much poetry that surrounds the very important moments when God works in history and in our lives. Now, I want to reflect on this song a little bit for you, and I think one of the things that maybe the, arguably the main theme here of the Zachariah's song is this theme of visitation, that God has visited his people. Blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation. Uh, Zechariah returns to this theme of visitation at the end of this song as well when he talks about God visiting his people from on high. And this language of visitation is a really important um, image or metaphor for how God in the Old Testament would uh, intervene in a saving way in the life of Israel. So it's, it's very common language for the Jewish people to think about. Um, and and Zechariah, look at how he talks about it. Um, He's not saying when he says that God is going to visit, he's not saying that the Lord will visit, like a future event. He's saying the Lord has visited. He has redeemed. He has raised up a horn. Now, the reality is this, is that, you know, uh, Zechariah is aware of Jesus's, uh, he, Jesus has yet to be born. He is in the womb of Mary, growing there. Nobody had an idea of who this child was, what he would be, what he would do, how he would save. But per, again, Zechariah has a prophetic imagination. He understands that the appearance of this child, even in utero, means salvation itself. And you think a little bit more about this language of visitation. And what does it teach us about how God comes to us in our lives today in the third coming? Think about a visitation. A visitation is not an invasion, right? When God comes into our life during this time, it's not an invasion like an army to smash our enemies. Uh, a visitation is not a scheduled meeting, right? We, where we put our calendars together and we're like, we're going to meet here and then. A visitation isn't even a chance encounter. Think about a visitation. It's more domestic. To have a visit from another pe person means... Um, you receive a guest into your household, into your world, if you will, your reality. And um, the thing about a visitation is you can't demand it, right? I can't demand. I mean, now as parents, you perhaps, or grandparents, you like demand, you show up so we can see the grandkids, right? But you, typically, we cannot demand people visit us, right? The other thing about a visitation is you don't really have control over when your guest arrives. 
They can say, well, we're going to be here X or I'm going to be here around this time. But, but, you know, they could be delayed or they could be late. And so you're waiting, right? So there's always a sense of expectation too. And the thing about a visitation is when uh, somebody visits, um, you're not really sure what they're coming with, what they're bringing with them, what the nature of the visit will be like, right? There's a lot of things we, we, don't, we don't know and we can't control. In many ways, we're at the mercy of the one who is visiting us. And so there's also a sense of vulnerability, too. And if you don't know a visitor as well, you can feel a little nervous or vulnerable about what, what they might bring. And the question is this, how does Christ visit us in his third coming? How should we think about his visitation? Last week, I preached about uh, the and that the second coming of Jesus, he will come with power and glory. And there will be no mistake about that he has come. That this is it. Well, we will not mistake it with anything else. Right? It, like lightning across the sky or thunder in the, in the background. There is no denying what it is. But the visitation of the Lord during our time, also even in the time his first coming, it is easy to miss. It's easy to miss. It's more mysterious. It's more humble. It's God veiled in human flesh. We were not expecting salvation to come like this. And at the time of Zechariah, uh, this salvation is completely hidden in the womb of Mary. Nobody knows but Mary and Elizabeth. Mary, this obscure and unknown girl from an unknown family in a rural part of Israel. There's no fanfare, there's no like loud proclamations of the birth of the son. It is just Zechariah, an aging Simeon and Anna later on in the temple, and John the Baptist that know and point to this one as the longing of Israel. When it comes to us being prepared for a visitation of the Lord during his third coming, it's important that we trust we listen and we trust the words of the prophet. It's important to listen to the words of the prophet. Zechariah had to learn this the hard way. Have you ever had a visit from a, a friend or family that went badly, but not because of your visitor, <laughs> but because you weren't prepared? You weren't prepared for the visit. Zechariah has a very similar experience. Um, when he is serving in the temple, the angel Gabriel comes to him. This is prior, when his, prior to the, the conception of John. The angel Gabriel comes to him in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and he announces to him, good news, your wife will be with child. She is going to conceive. And Zechariah's response is, how will I know this? is true. Give me a sign. He doubted. Now, I would say that a visit from the angel Gabriel is the sign, right? Like if the angel Gabriel is visiting you from the very presence of God, that is the sign, right? And for this, Gabriel discerns uh, unbelief in Zachariah's heart, and he says to him, you will be mute. That will be the sign. You won't be able to talk into the birth of your son. Now, the reality is this, is that Zechariah was not prepared. He was not ready for a visit from the Lord. He was not ready. 
Now, to be clear, Zechariah was a righteous man. He was a faithful man. He was a good man, but he was not prepared <laughs> to receive God. He doubts. He's perhaps cynical. And you can imagine, right? Like decades and decades of unanswered prayer. Lord, help Elizabeth. Help us to have a baby. Nothing. And so it's just a shame. And so you can imagine God finally comes and says, it's going to happen. I'm answering your prayers. It's like, I'll believe it when I see it. He cannot receive God's visit with joy because he doesn't trust the words of the messenger. Now, I think we risk the same kind of spiritual danger all the time in our lives. We are very prone to do what Zechariah did, which is um, to, to, to not believe, to have unbelief in our hearts, which ruins God's visit. Ruins the visit. And by unbelief, I don't mean disbelief. Disbelief, as I would use it, would be like, I don't believe. I don't believe that Christ is the Savior. I don't believe in God's existence. But unbelief is different. It's not quite the same thing. Unbelief is far more subtle. It's more, um, it's more just to, to be cynical that God actually will make good on his promises, <laughs> right? That God will actually fulfill what he's saying. It is possible for us to have God coming into our life and visiting us right now and for us not to see it or just not to receive it or not to want to receive it because for whatever reason, we're hurt, maybe we're mad at God or we're distrustful or we're cynical or we're bitter or we're proud. We have to trust the word of the prophet. I think it's sometimes easier for us to believe the words of rebuke from the prophets rather than the words of promise and comfort. Sometimes it's easier for us to believe bad news than it is to believe good news. Sometimes I think our greatest struggle of unbelief in life is, is um, to believe that God's promises are for me, right? I believe in them. I will tell other, other people about God's promises, and I even believe they're for others, because I can see it, but I don't actually believe they're for me. I don't believe they're true for me. Does this, uh, has this ever happened to you? <laughs> you ever feel this way? Zechariah reminds us of these incredible promises. And this song is actually one of the greatest expressions of the benefits of the gospel and of what all the beauty and good things that the gospel and salvation brings into our life. And he says, just part of it, he says, um, this promise that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies, that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. These are incredible promises of God that draw together two streams of longing and hope in the history of Israel. The first stream is the stream associated with David, that God would raise up a savior, a Messiah like David, who would liberate God's people from the oppression of their enemies, 
The other stream, the more ancient stream, is that of Abraham, in which God promises the people a land and blessing and a name. But here, as Zechariah talks about it, it's in terms of living without fear. Living without fear, which is to live in freedom and righteousness and holiness. Do you believe that God wants to deliver you from your enemies? Do you believe that God wants to deliver you from your enemies? Do you believe that he can? Perhaps that enemy is just a sin that has always been there that you've never been able to sort of shake. Do you believe that God can deliver you from that? Do you believe that God can deliver you from hatred? The hatred of other people towards you? Or perhaps just the hatred in your own heart towards others? Do you believe that God can deliver you from that? Do you believe that God wants to be merciful to you? That he wants to forgive you for the sins, perhaps great sins that you've done, that the shame that you feel that he can take away? Do you, do you believe that he can actually do that and wants to do that? Do you believe you can live in life with a sense of true freedom? True freedom to just to be and to love and to, to be blessed to live in holiness? Do you believe that righteousness is possible for you? A holy life that somebody might someday say about you, he is a holy man or a holy woman? Or is that just for people who are special and spiritual? A prophetic imagination is to learn and to imagine how these things are true, not just for others, but for me and for you. And that God visits you every day. (laughs) It's not just like this time of year where we're like, oh, he's finally going to come. No, he can visit you and he will visit you every day and he will make these promises true. The other day I was uh, taking the dog for a walk. Got a dog named Waffles. I was taking a dog for the walk, for a walk around the neighborhood. And I was, um, I was praying and I was reflecting it was that one of those really cold uh, days a couple weeks ago. And I was feeling the heaviness of life and of ministry in the darkness. You know, the darkness of our world and the darkness of the lives of many people I know and some of you. <laughs> and as I was walking by some of the different houses in my neighborhood, and I've lived in this neighborhood for a long time, and I know many of the people in those households, and I know many of their stories. And I know that in those households, there is a lot of darkness. (laughs) There is a lot of pain. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of loss. And I was reminded of um, this um, prophecy, this song of Zechariah, where he says, you know, many sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Of course, this is from Isaiah 9, which was read this morning, so brilliantly by Eli. (laughs) He walked in darkness and lived in a land of deep darkness. And I think this captures what life is like for many of us, for what life is like in America. Um, One of the things about being a pastor um, is that I see a lot of the darkness. You share it with me. I see a lot of the pain. I see a lot of the suffering. And there's more pain and there's more suffering than you realize. (laughs) 
of those sitting around you, of those who are close to you. And when we gather together as the church or as families over Thanksgiving, I think a lot of times we keep the darkness to ourselves. We, we try to hold it in so nobody is, see, has to see our darkness. Or, or a little darkness comes out and we turn away because we're like, ah, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be there. And we're, we turn away from the darkness. But I think to have a poetic imagination, a prophetic imagination, is to be able, one, to see the darkness and not to feel like you have to look away, to not to look like you have to retreat from it. It's the courage to enter into the darkness with others, to enter into your own darkness, to deal with it rather than to try to deny it or to move away from it. I mean, our culture is trying to deal with the darkness, but it doesn't know how. All it has is artificial light. <laughs> That's the only way that we know how to deal with the darkness, is through artificial light or a screen, right? <laughs> a screen shines on us in the darkness to distract us from our pain and our misery, to always be distracted so you don't actually have to consider the darkness. There is a difference, a big difference, between the illumination of artificial light and the illumination that comes through the sun. And this is the difference between life in Christ and life outside of Jesus Christ. It is the difference between having artificial light shining into your life, spiritually speaking, and the sun. <laughs> the sun can light up a room in an instant, the sun nourishes. The sun makes things grow. And it is the same with the sunshine and the light of Christ himself. Zechariah describes God's salvation as a visitation in terms of light. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Friends, there is a lot of darkness in the world. There's a lot of darkness in the lives of people around you and close to you, perhaps you don't even know about. But you know your own darkness. But it is against this black, dark background of darkness that the light of Christ shines brightly. The light of Christ shines brighter then the darkness is dark. The light of Christ shines brighter than the darkness is dark. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, John does not have a nativity scene, but he does describe the theological truth and theological reality of what we observe during Advent and Christmas, and that it is that Christ came into the world, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you shine the light of Christ into our hearts, into the darkness. Uh, may we not be afraid, afraid of the darkness in our own hearts and in our own lives, 
afraid of the darkness in the world, afraid in the darkness of those who are close or seated by us, but armed with the light of Christ, with the full force and of the sun and all of its um, nourishing warmth and brightness. May you uh, visit us, Lord, enlighten us, and give us life. We give you thanks for this time of year, and may we, um, may we uh, have a sense of your presence, your visitation in our lives, even this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.